Welcome to Female Inner Power, the podcast for women who don't want to choose between work success and life happiness. I'm your host, Nomi Melkyonatan, leadership coach and courage catalyst. Each week, I will share a refreshingly honest conversation about how to trust your intuition, lead from female power in male-dominated spaces, and inspire you to be a more confident force for good in the world. Are you ready? Welcome, welcome to another episode of Female Inner Power. I am beyond thrilled to be able to bring you this conversation with Louis Turnquist and I've been thinking about, I mean, besides from reading her official bio, which I will, I mean, Louis is the CEO and managing director of Edition William Hansen, the largest and oldest music publisher in the Nordics. And she's run the company as a CEO for 14 years. She was incredibly young, as you will hear when you listen to the episode, when she got this role. I don't want to spoil this story. I will tell you more of her bio, but what I really want you to pay attention to, I was with a group of women the other day talking about female leadership and many of them were asking, how do I influence? Well, listen to Louis here. She's not trying to influence me. She's not trying to influence you. But she's holding her power. She's tapping into her heart and soul and speaking from that place. And I felt my heart expand. I felt myself moved. I felt goosebumps as we went through the conversation at several different points. She will touch you if you let your heart be open. And that is what influencing is, speaking from the heart and from the soul. And what's extraordinary about Louis you know, it's the many different things that she has done. And she is very clear that she does not want you to compare and go into, oh my gosh, easy for her. I think when you listen and particularly keep, keep listening, continue all the way to the end, you will find that you'll be surprised at the courage she had at different times to ask for what she needs and how she has made things work. And I hope you will be inspired to stay ambitious, but ask for what you want and what you need. Louise also the mother of three children. She has dogs and chickens and a husband. <laughs> they live in Copenhagen. And she's also the chairperson of the board of CODA, which is a collecting society for music industry in Denmark with a turnover of 128 million pounds yearly. Koda is one of the biggest and most influential music companies in Denmark. She's also a trained psychotherapist and she created an organic skincare company in 2012, which we did not even have time to touch on the fact that she also has an organic skincare company. So I don't know anything about that. She's full of surprises, but most of all, she's genuine and she's really role modeling how we can talk about our mistakes, how we can be fierce in our motherhood and at the same time really show up for our leadership and for our matter for what matters and for how we want to lead and how we can lead with empathy i think you will love this conversation before we dive in quick requests here from me this podcast spreads the best when you tell others about it so i would be thrilled if you enjoy this episode do share it with at least one other amazing human perhaps another woman or perhaps another man that you want to hear this conversation and 
do remember to hit the subscribe button so you get notified every time there is another episode. With that, let's take a breath and dive in. Louis, welcome to the Female Inner Power podcast. I am so excited to have you here. There are many, many topics I'd love us to dive into. Um, before we start, could you introduce yourself and just say where in the world you are and what does work look like? What does home life look like right now? Well, thank you, Normie, and thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here. Um, yeah, well, quickly, that's big questions. What does your home life look like? What does your work life look like? But I'm a 42-year-old woman. I live in Copenhagen in Denmark, and I work out of Copenhagen. Um, on the work side, I am the CEO of a music, pub music publishing company called Edition Willem Hansen. Um, and I'm the chairperson of CODA, which is a collecting society for performance rights for music. And on the private side, I am married um, and have three children aged four, uh, 14, 12 and seven years. Oh, so you have a really, really busy life and you also have a psychotherapy degree, I believe. I do. <laughs> I became a trained uh, or do you call it certified psychotherapist in March after four years of education. Okay, we'll come back to where that fits into being a CEO of a mu music publishing company. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tell me, when I say female inner power, what does that mean to you? Um, it means a lot, actually, and it means more and more. Uh, interestingly, I think I have been a bit naive and perhaps ignorant about female inner power. Um, I have been working all my life in a industry with quite ma male-dominated uh, managers, leaders, and CEOs, and I don't think I've had the uh, honesty and the courage to look into female inner power so it is actually becoming more and more relevant more and more important and um, my my if I should say it in you know a few words I think it's about trusting your intuition that would be my very broad highlight of what I believe in a part in a female power is because it is so difficult it is so underestimated and it is so challenging to trust your intuition it is something that is very hard to get a hold on what is it and how do I do it and how do I trust it and so on so that's a lot about the the process I'm in myself um, and working on all the time is trusting my intuition because that gives me the inner power I'm always trying to calibrate and trying to to navigate with. I'm curious, you said that it it's become more and more important and that previously maybe you were a bit naive or you didn't understand how important it was. Can you say more about like what shifted or what do you mean like you were naive before about it? 
Yeah, um, I've grown up in Denmark. It's a liberal country. We've always prided ourselves with being an egalitarian country. We were very modern back in the 70s and the 80s with uh, the female liberation and coming into the art uh, to the to the work market, we were very open and free minded with homosexuals uh, getting married quite early in Denmark. We had Christiania, this free town where they created their own rules. So in Denmark, we had this impression that we're very modern and very equal. And I was under that impression, and it was actually uh, at a talk town on March 8th, the uh, Women's International, what do you call it in English, fight day or... Yeah, I don't actually... March, <laughs> right, this March. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and um, I was at a seminar all day, and it was, I think it's about seven years ago now, and it was just life-changing, I, I left it feeling so um, totally unaware of how bad it was, how unequal things were. This is in the music, music industry, especially. Um, we had an amazing equality. He was a diversity, equality, inclusion uh, manager, actually from the BBC, who came to Copenhagen and explained how the BBC thought about working with all of these very important issues when broadcasting how to show people with handicaps, how to show people with different colors um, so that you represent the English population. And we looked at the Danish way of thinking of this and it was just narrow minded. And the women especially is a very big I don't like to call the women a minority because they're not, but they don't have equal rights when it when it's you know they have on a piece of paper, but it actually is not so when you start doing statistics on the gender um, salary gap on the high positions and so on, and that was when I realized I I can't buy into the whole story about us being equal anymore and I called some people the next day and I said I haven't slept all night we have to change this um, and one of the ways we started by changing it is I said we need numbers we need statistics we're all saying well maybe there aren't many women in top positions and on boards in Denmark but I know someone who's a top CEO in a big company so it's possible and I said, whenever we're battling with people's personal stories and narratives, we're never going to be able to convince anyone. So we started investigating in music how many women composers are actually programmed on festivals and orchestras and so on. So that was actually my personal uh, start to become more aware of the whole equality and gender uh, challenges that we're facing. So it sounds like, I mean, and coming from Denmark, of course, I've also had the same experience of like, oh, well, in Denmark, it's all equal. And so your experience was suddenly a wake up call of, well, gender um, equality isn't just something that happens outside of Denmark, even in liberal Denmark. It's a thing that women in terms of power positions have less of those. 
they're not represented in in equal representative to how many of us there are in the population. Exactly, very much so. And I think actually, it is not out of evil intention. This is a worldwide challenge we're facing. But for Denmark, I think we've had a bit of a lazy approach because we thought we were ahead of the game. And that means everyone else has uh, done a bit of a sprint. And Denmark is actually certainly not at all ahead of the game. Um, that's, that's how I interpret it. Interesting. Well, you haven't had sort of an what I would call like a normal experience of sort of working your way up towards top leadership. You, you became a CEO already at the age of 26. Can you say something yes. more about what it was like, how you became a CEO at the age of 26, but also what it was like at 26? Absolutely. It was, I mean, when I look back now, it it was such a young age, but at the time I just tried my best The reason I was, I, I became CEO at 26 was that the publishing company, Willem Hansen, is a family business originally. So it was founded in 1857 by my great, 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 great grandfather. Um, and in 1988, it was bought by Wise Music Group. They bought it from my grandmother and her sister, and they bought it all shares. But my mother was actually working at the time for the company and was trained in um, copyright law. So Wise Music Group said, why don't you continue for us? Which is pretty unusual. Usually you would say thank you to the family, send them away, and then you start doing your own thing. But in this case, there was a big respect for the family history. And Bob Wise, who owns Wise Music Group, said you should do it. So if we fast forward 25 years, um, my mother worked there and came to a point where she wanted to retire, said to the same Bob Wise, I'm I'm getting to the end of my time here. Who do you think should take over so I can give a proper handover? And he said, well, you have two daughters, don't you? Why don't you just ask one of them? And um, we have never, ever thought that this was going to be our way of, of working. And I was studying at the university. I was writing my thesis on communication and management. So... I thought it's too good to say no just up front. I have to learn more about this. And I went to London, met with um, the renowned Bob Wise and had an absolutely splendid <laughs> afternoon tea with him. And I said, you know, I'm 26 years old. I know nothing about copyright law. I know nothing about music. I think you're, I think you're a bit... Uh, insane to to hire me and he said no no it runs in the blood kiddo <laughs> and um I just couldn't I couldn't say no to it so I basically started after the summer holiday did a year of training I was actually 25 at that time and did a year of we called it I was the management trainee so everyone knew I was the the crown princess so to speak and after a year of 
working in the heel. I was running after my mother, just like a little child, basically, but learning everything about what she was doing and who she knew and how to do this. And uh, after a year, she said, you're ready. And we then did the very, actually, in hindsight, very clever move that we we made. Uh, we announced my mother to be the chairman of Willem Hansen, and I became the CEO, which was very handy because there was sometimes, as you said, I was a very young CEO. There were many times where I wasn't sure what to do. And I could, in those situations, say, I need to talk to my chair about this, and then I'll get back to you. And then I would call my mother. (laughs) (laughs) She was my chairperson, which was very, very clever, actually. And very, it worked out really, really well. So that's why I became a CEO at such a young age. It's such a beautiful, heartwarming story. And that bit that you didn't grow up thinking, so you weren't like groomed to be the person who was going to take over. Neither you or your sister were groomed to be the person who was going to take over the family company. You just assumed that wise would choose someone new. It was totally the assumption that Wise Music would choose someone who was trained and and correctly groomed for the job and not just choose a a daughter who was, by coincidence, uh, born into this role. Um, and, And I did at the point say several times that I thought the the owner, the UK owner was slightly mad because he had hired such an inappropriate CEO. And I've really had to eat my own words because it didn't take many years for me to understand that he has found perhaps the most loyal person to this business. I have the pictures of my ancestors in my office. And every time I'm with you know challenging times or tough decisions, I look at them and I'm, I, I think, oh, I, I really don't want to be that part of the chain that broke the whole business down, that didn't manage to, to make it grow in, in many ways. So he's found a person who is loyal to the company and who will go quite far to make ends meet. So I found out that he's certainly in no way <laughs> mad or insane. And I could learn. I went to went right back to school to university, and I learned copyright law, um, and did management training, and and had a mentor to tell me how to you know deal with challenging issues. So I was quite humble about what I did not know because I felt that was pretty much everything. <laughs> Beautiful. I think it's interesting. Like loyalty isn't something we talk about generally as a quality that is required for being a good leader in a business. So it sounds like you've learned something uh, about the importance of of loyalty. I mean, I just think that's not something I've talked about. Do you want to say a little bit more about how important it is? And if you're not born into to it, maybe uh, you. I'm sure you've hired lots of people. How do you get that loyalty in other people that aren't born into a legacy of many generations that belong to to the family and business? Yes, um, I can say for myself that music publishing, and because we've been in the business for 160 years, I've met so many people both in Scandinavia and Denmark and, and worldwide who has worked with my mother 
and with my grandmother and her sister. And I still meet people who talk to me about how tough it was to negotiate with my grandmother or how they invented a new model for exploiting music in a wonderful way. And it truly is so fulfilling to hear these stories and to be part of this history that we, we're writing all the time. And I think that kind of experience is quite unique and does create a, a loyalty in itself. Of course, as you say, Normi, there are, with staff members, they don't have that, I guess, the, the blood, the family blood in them. But to them, it's extremely fulfilling to be part of that story. I mean, for them, it's also quite a big identity to be with a very old established company where we've had Carl Nielsen, Jakob Gale. We've had all the very big, we have Sibelius, the the the, the big uh, lighthouses of, of classical music, also in the more modern classical music that we represent. But they're proud and they're proud to be writing themselves into that history as well. And then I think as a manager, I really came in from day one also because I was so young and said, I am nothing without you. So I know nothing. I don't have any experience. The only way we're going to succeed going forward is if I can lean into you and your knowledge. And that was really my 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 take on how to navigate through this as a CEO uh, was to give a lot of responsibility and a lot of credit to my staff. And I think that was quite a good opener into them also respecting me and also wanting me to succeed, which is, of course, very, very important when you want to come in and, and succeed as a new CEO. Yeah. So um, I'm just thinking for anyone who's listening and who is a, a leader of a business, that bit of telling the story of the business and what people are becoming part of. It's such a storytelling is is how our human brains are wired. We We want to hear stories. We remember stories. We do not remember facts. And so that bit of remembering to tell the story of why are we in business and what is this about and what is the legacy we're building that is such a key quality. Um, I want to check in with you, though. Were there anyone, maybe straight away or later on? So Bob Wise clearly was like, I know what I'm doing. I want, you know, <laughs> I want you. Um, you've got it in the blood. But were there anyone else either within the Danish part of the company or in the wise part of the company that at that point or later on went like, wait, look at this young woman, 27, you know, 26, 27, 28. 20, I mean, like, did did you have a hard time with anyone? Did anyone challenge you or um, sort of, uncon you know, like maybe unconsciously or deliberately, yeah, battle against you? Um, absolutely. I, I, I think some of them did it because I messed up and because I didn't exactly knew my role. Um, I clearly remember one of the first, I think I'd been in the CEO for a few months and I had been the trainee for a year, so I didn't know my staff quite well. And 
one of my staff members was saying something that wasn't uh, in a joking way. He was sort of dismissing something I wanted to get done. And I said, watch out now or I'll fire you. And he just went white. And I just realized you can't joke with that. It's not funny when you have the power to actually fire him. It was just such a life lesson. I obviously um, cleaned it up straight away with him. And I'm like, that was a joke. And that was a really bad joke. I apologize. That was just out of order. Um, and I took it home with me. And I, I really took that as a life lesson on never to take power lightly. It is so important. Um, so that was really an important one for me. Um, another one was, I remember I wanted to replace all my staff members because it had been quite a few years where it would, it, it had just sort of a new staff would come in. You can sit there because there's an empty desk. And I had a big plan for how to group people differently in divisions and departments that would make sense. And these could cross communicate and into the, avoid the whole silo system. And I did this whole plan and I presented it and they just hated it. <laughs> I couldn't understand why they hated it, but that was again, totally on me I just didn't understand how important it was for someone to know that this was their space they had the drawer with their stuff in and I'm really not saying this to make it less important it was just they were more rooted than I had understood and um, there was a lot of critique a lot of uh opposing and i had to give a few um written warnings based on the fact that people were actually not willing to move and they obviously were going against my will so i gave written warnings and the day i had to do it when i woke up in the morning i had such a poor back what do you call it when the lower back is um misplaced oh yes oh, did, did you dislocated like something in your back yeah it's like the the anyway it was so bad and my back was so in such a bad state I couldn't go to work and and again there were so many small lessons in this for me so okay I clearly didn't manage to get my staff on board with this new idea I was having because I didn't involve them and that was first wrong thing I did so never I've never done it like that since second there is so much emotion in this and the fact that I had to reinstate my power with these written warnings was was actually tough and it was so tough that it sat in with me when I have big emotional imbalances it always goes in my back and I just had it that straight away that morning I was overwhelmed by the amount of of emotional instability and and conflict I was setting off um so again it it 
taught me how to try to be more um, open, involved. And it's it's a lot of these things I've done ever since, but I certainly make my mistakes in the beginning. That's for sure. So, I mean, moving people is massive, like giving them a new seat and, and also this whole not having a desk is hugely upsetting to a lot of people. Did you write the warnings in the end or did you then decide not to write them? What did you do? I decided to write them. I had written them up and they were um, actually so disobeying that I had to set an example also to the other staff members but there were just, I think it had gotten to a point where I had to do it. But I certainly had my share of faults on the way to getting to a point where I had to do it. And it's actually, that is something I often, in my uh, role as a CEO, as a chairperson, think a lot about that whenever I have to um, sort of raise my voice, have to, you know, show my power, show the stars on my shoulders, it is usually because I haven't been good enough at giving the right directions or guidelines earlier on, because otherwise we wouldn't have ended there. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's always a big um, remembrance and sign that what did I have on my part that took us to getting why did we get here? Um, wh where did I not communicate properly or show the directions properly? Because I've taken a lot of unpopular decisions where I didn't have to go into this conflict situation because it was handled in a better way. So if anyone is listening and thinking, oh, I have some unpopular decisions coming up I need to make, what would you say to them? What have you learned about making unpopular decisions in a way that work? Um, I think a very important point is communication. How do we tell the unpopular decision? Because there are really many ways to do it. There is also, which is more structural, is there an option to include people more in the steps leading up to also an unpopular decision? Um I remember we had to sell a part of our company once and in relation to that, I had to fire some of my very um, cherished staff members. They've been there for many years and it was, first of all, I struggled a lot and I actually ended up in the morning calling my um, manager and saying, I think I'll just quit because it is so against me to, to let these people go. And first of all, he was an amazing manager who really took the time and he respected that I felt that way. He didn't say, you know, well, that's part of the game. Just go and do it. He really gave me some time to just unload and be unhappy and listen. And then he, <laughs> of course, at the end, encouraged me to do what we had decided to do. But the way I did it with them was also quite unusual. And I remember they came, several of them, after a week and said, thank you. They thanked me for having let them go in such a caring way. 
And and that's to answer your question, Normie, I think it's very important that we have empathy, that we have empathy also when it's difficult and unpopular. I can have a, a, a reaction that goes, well, I know this is going to be very unpopular, so therefore I'm going to distance myself from you guys. I'm going to become more introvert. I'm going to become a bit more hard in my message because I'm protecting myself from what I know you're going to come lashing at me with. So instead of doing that, try to be empathetic and just, you know, we can all say, I know, I understand this is not what you wanted. Mm-hmm. Is that what you did? Was that, You said you did it in an unusual way. So you led with empathy. What else? Was there anything specific that you can share that you did? I I really just was very aware of my heart connection with them. I sat down with them and I I, I was determined to stay open towards them. Yes, it was not difficult. It was not easy for me to do it. But if it's, I mean, that was nothing towards what I was doing to them. And I knew these people from many years, their families, their children. So for me, it was very much about staying open in the heart connection and just being really, truly sorry we had to do it this way. And being, you know, supportive of how good qualities they have and how I was going to try to help them in every way I could to move on. And I was sure, you know, I was really saying, I'm sure this is part of a bigger plan without becoming too spiritual in a, in a situation where we are letting someone go. I was, I was really trying to shed the light on the future and and saying I was going to help them with it. Nice. And it was very rewarding to get the feedback saying, one of them said there's no one else I would rather be fired by than you (laughs) (laughs) that's beautiful wow um I have to say having coached others that had to fire people if you do it the way you you do you can get the thank yous and I have heard that beforehand of of previous clients of mine that have received thank yous for you know and like you said if because if you stick just to the HR script or the the legal script that doesn't work when you take take your human self out of it and you just want to get it over and done with um I want to talk about all the many things you've had going on and in Denmark it's normal to have a long maternity leave you've had three children and you're a CEO of a business um did you just ignore the Danish way of long maternity leaves and just was like well I'm a CEO so clearly that's not going to work for me and I'm within an English company that's better than the U.S. company but still like you know there's a there's a business to to run and how did you manage all of that um certainly not very well (laughs) (laughs) um I became pregnant and was unaware of it when I was handed the Depeche and became CEO of Willem Hansen. So we had a big farewell party to my mother and a big welcome party for me at the same time. And all the hotshots from the UK and around the world flew in. We had a big night out and I had the worst hangover I've ever had in my life. And obviously that was because it turned out I was pregnant. So it was a bit of a bumpy ride. 
because it wasn't very easy to call the people who had just applauded the fact that I was going to lead on this traditional, historic, family generation build house uh, and say, by the way, I'm off, guys, in <laughs> six months. And um, they took it quite well. And obviously, I called my mother and I said, I need a, uh, I need a cover for my maternity leave. And you're the only one who can cover for me because I'm the CEO. So she covered for me and I did six months of maternity leave. And my husband did six months of maternity leave. And looking back, it was tough. It was too short. I wish I could have done more. And it was not the ideal way of doing it. I said too short of maternity me. leave. Well, too short. Too, yeah. Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah, too short. Sorry. Yes. Because too short. Of I'm thinking if we have US listeners that have six weeks, you know, <laughs> they'll say six weeks. That is forever. <laughs> I know. And I know it's maybe slightly, um, um, you know, we're very well off in Scandinavia when it comes to maternity leave and how we're secured. So absolutely, I know I'm already very, very lucky with what we had or what we have. Um, but if you take the third child, I took a full year and a bit and it was an absolute delight. <laughs> it was the best way to do it. The interesting thing with number one was I also felt I had to be partly at work so I would be breastfeeding and writing emails at the same time and calling in and coming in with the baby on the arm and it and the interesting thing was I had one of my my staff members saying several years later oh it was such a mess when you were on your first maternity leave because we couldn't really figure out were you here were you not it was just you were all around the place and then you didn't respond always but you tried and that was actually true it wasn't ideal for the company I thought I was trying to you know be for the be there for the company as well but they didn't appreciate it because I wasn't there fully so so that was actually quite an interesting lesson on if you're if you're gone you have to also know that you are dispensable for that time so I really uh, tried to do it better the second and the third time and there was well there no hesitation from the wise company or from anyone else going like okay really you're going to have more children like you're the CEO here like what you're going to keep taking these long maternity leaves what's this about I mean did you have any conversations you needed to have or, or with yourself or with anyone else in the business oh yes every time every time it was by the third time, it sort of had became a bit of a joke. <laughs> but I think one interesting thing where you could see the difference between the Scandinavian mentality and maybe the UK mentality, I don't know, but they sometimes said, especially the first time, they said, well, it was short, but it was really nice to meet you. And I said, I'm, I'm coming back. I'm off for maternity leave for six months and I'll be back no yeah yeah maybe mm, yeah but it has been really nice meeting you so there was clearly an understanding that when you have children you don't always come back for work and um whereas in in Denmark 
it's very, very normal that we work and we have our children in daycare. Um, so, so that was one of the reactions I, I had from, from my CEOs. And then I think apart from that, they were just, to be honest, it's all male CEOs and managers I have above me in the UK. And they sometimes said, I don't know how you manage. How do you do it? <laughs> so I think it was more a question of they couldn't imagine doing it themselves in that way. And how do you do it? Because you are still the CEO. You have, okay, now your kids are older, but then you decided to take on some board positions just because you had lots of extra flexibility and time now that the kids were older. So became board member and then of several different organizations and then a chairperson and then a psychotherapy degree in the middle of it, which definitely I have done therapeutic training and that, that doesn't just take time, takes a lot of emotional um bandwidth i mean how how does that work um well it's a good question and i think it's extremely important to emphasize that i'm no superhuman um i think it's also very important to say it's not for everyone and we don't all want to do it the same way i I've I've had that question quite a few times and it always makes me a bit sad because I know someone will will compare to it and feel they are not enough and I'm not doing anything extraordinary um I'm I'm doing it my way and there are many things that I could do differently and that would be better and I look at a lot of my Uh, surroundings and and so me and what have we not and I compare to them and think wow what if I could do that so Nomi I'm just saying that because it's so easy for me to I, I hear this often that people say oh you're doing this and that and it's impressive but it's not it's just something I've chosen to do in this way because I couldn't help it I didn't want to do it differently so that's just important for me to emphasize um clearly i have been stressed at times no doubt about that sometimes it's been too much and i'm not a person who wants stress in my life i don't want too much in my life and i do remember especially when the kids were younger you know in denmark we all bicycle we all bicycle i am all by bi- i bicycle Come rain, snow, sun, I bicycle in all kinds of weather. And I'm on my bike and I remember the kids were young and I just left the office and I called my mother and I said, I'm on my bike and I'm treading my pedals as fast as I can. And no matter how fast I tread them, I'm too late to pick up the kids. I feel I'm picking them up as the last person, the last parent in the daycare. At the same time, I feel I've left the office way too early. I'm the first one among the staff to leave the office. So I have felt so insufficient in all areas because it is a huge job to manage the work and the life balance at the same time. And it 
does get better when the kids get older, but it is rough for years. And I think, I think it's very, very, very important to be very honest about that. Do you have any advice if you feel insufficient for anyone? Or did did your mom have any good advice, or have you you since learned something that helps with that feeling of being insufficient? I think one thing that I have learned is to say no. And you can say that politely. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, being in the music business, there are a ton of events and concerts and receptions to go to every day. And I quickly decided that I will never, ever be able to attend enough of that anyway so I'm going to have to say no to a staggering amount of invitations. And that has helped me a lot. I've also said no thank you to meetings outside business hours, if in any way possible. Um, so I've really practiced standing strong and firm when people want to meet Friday at five or four o'clock in the afternoon or, you know, board meetings that happen usually at four or five o'clock and then and on with dinner and so on. That has been a big exercise for me. And in one of these ways, I differ from my mother. Um, she has attended all of that. I remember as a child, she would go to all of these events and some of them she wanted to do, some of them she certainly didn't want to do. And I always remember thinking, but why does she do it if she doesn't want to do it as a child? And that has sort of also been a bit of a compass needle for me. I'm not going to do it if I don't. And I know it sounds a bit privileged. We can't just choose always. Sometimes we do have to be there. So do I. And I do that from time to time. But I have really, really practiced saying no to all the things that aren't very necessary. Mm. What helps you then believe that you're enough? I remember when we had a pre-chat, you said, I'm so glad to be done with self-doubt. What has helped you be be done with and that going, I can trust my judgment. This is not necessary. You know, I, I'm going to choose no. Mm. It was, I wish I would have been able to learn it without having um some tough experiences but unfortunately i needed to learn the hard way um one of the toughest things i've tried in in my life is that our third child uh became quite severely ill when she was two and a half she had a blood disease which meant that she she couldn't hurt herself uh, because she couldn't coagulate the blood and it went from, she had extremely bad numbers for, from the very beginning. And they said it would, after three months, 50% of all children, it stopped again. It didn't stop for our daughter. After six months, it didn't stop. And it actually continued uh, onwards. But that was my wake-up call. I tried for the first six months of from she had her diagnosis. I tried to be that person who could still maintain the job and 
work efficiently, still be a mother, still do all the things I wanted to do. And at the same time, I had the daycare calling me. Well, she was in yeah daycare. And they were calling me several times a week because that was the deal we had. If she hurt herself, they would call me and explain what had happened so that I could uh, decide whether to call uh, 911 or not. And that was the thing to do. We didn't, we couldn't have any med- medication that helped. And after six months, I was in the office. I had a meeting with a very important composer we were going to sign and his manager. And this was the big meeting where it was all going to happen. And just before they came, my phone rang and it was the daycare. And, and by that time, I was so fed up with this calling and and being worried so I just turned the phone around and didn't pick it up so I pretended they that they hadn't called and they we we had an agreement with them that they could call both me and my my husband of course so I invited the guests in we start the meeting and suddenly it knocks at my door to into my office and in comes one of the staff members and says oh someone's calling from something called the rainbow about your daughter. And I was like, oh, no, that hasn't happened before. So I pick up the phone outside in the front reception office and uh, they say she's fell off some, some wooden thing. She hurt her head. And, and I just, I was numbed and I said, is there any blood coming from her ears, from her eyes, from her nose or mouth? And everything stopped. My staff members were just not working and they were looking at me thinking, what is she saying? And I said, okay, well, if there's no uh, sign of blood now, you uh, just keep an eye on her call this number again if no if if she has bleedings from anywhere you call 911 first and then you call this number again bye bye and i hung up and i went in and i said to the closed the door again and i said to the writer so so which creative projects are you working on at the moment and at that point i could just tell something inside me just crushed or broke and I've managed to get through the meeting and uh, that they didn't call from the daycare. So nothing had happened that was more serious. But when I came home that evening, I just cried. I cried for hours and said, I can't, I can't do this. It's, it's too much. So that was my turning point and that's where it became so simple and so clear that my daughter comes first and in hindsight didn't I know that all along of course apparently not it's it's so mad when I tell the story to think that that I wasn't aware of it but I was and wasn't in any case it gave me the courage 
to call my CEO the next day and say the very simple uh, choice was either you continue with me on part-time or I quit. And it was quite quiet <laughs> at the other end of the phone line. And I just said, as it is, my daughter is ill. I've tried for six months to balance everything. And it's not possible, at least not for me right now. And there is only one way you're going to keep me. And that is on a part-time position. And, I, and there is no room for negotiation. And I remember he said, I think this is very modern if we go down <laughs> that route. He said, is it possible to be a CEO part-time? And I said, I don't care what is possible and what is modern or what is not possible and what is traditional. I, This is what I can offer you. And, and in many ways, I'm sad that I had to take it that far why couldn't I have just asked for this much sooner on the other hand I'm very proud that I listened I, I think I listened because there was no alternative to listening and went through with it and became a part-time CEO for how long up until now really so you're still part-time um I've just gone back to full time. Okay. But that's be that's because I've become the chair of C um the chair of CODA. Okay. And that is part of the whole uh you can say political and strategic ambition of the Wise Music Group. So I've had to bump it up now, but it's also worth mentioning it is now four and a half years ago. Since so, so four years ago is when I asked to become part time CEO and became part time. And my daughter was ill with the very bad numbers for her blood for three years. And then after three years, it slowly improved. And we are now not at all where it should be, but it is at a less dangerous level. And it has totally uh changed we don't have any uh what do you call it regulations or any guidelines for restrictions sorry we don't have any restrictions for her now we had three years of res restrictions we weren't allowed to travel she couldn't learn to bicycle ice skate roller skate uh doing gymnastics um go skiing you know all the things that was an internal part of our daily life was just ripped away because it was too dangerous for her for three years after three years the numbers improved to a level where they removed all restrictions and we just could start leading leading a normal life again so that's why I've also, she started school at the same time last year. So it's all been part of a healthy process of me wanting to come back on full time, her not needing me as much. So in many ways, I'm back, <laughs> back to a full time position, but it has been such 
a giving experience, also to challenge the given norms and values on what is a CEO. I feel like there are so many questions in the time we've got left that I want to ask you. I want to both ask you about what you've learned about being a part-time CEO, about what it's like to be a board member, a board chair, and where psychotherapy fits into all of that. They might all be connected. You you go where you want to go. What do you what do you want to share out of all of that? <laughs> oh, good question. I think um I think it would be interesting to just talk a little bit about the psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, the psychotherapy is a bit of a satellite in my uh, career. I have been doing board work for the last six years of my life. And, and did you seek, been... seek that out? Did you look for board positions or did they come sort of to you? Um, I would say in the very beginning, it was almost uh, mutual I was starting to find it very interesting and at the same time I was actually offered um not off not offered a position but I was sort of um asked to motivate a to be a can motivate myself to become a candidate uh for a board which was where several people would um what do you call it? fight for the places on the yeah. board yeah apply yeah. yeah apply exactly we were several applicants and and there were fewer seats than applicants so um so i was asked to become one of the applicants and and got into this board there where i started my whole board career and that was just so enlightening because as a ceo you're always thinking strategy, of course, but also a lot of operations and tactics in terms of solving uh, day-to-day issues and, and running the company. And coming into a ball, you're suddenly allowed to have all these good ideas, but you don't have to take them all the way to the end. That's for the um, executives to do. That's for the, the company the operations to do and that really lit my fire because I thought I have these very ambitious ideas when it comes to equality diversity equality inclusion on one hand that's my one torch and the other torch I really go with is the whole sustainability torch so those are the two very very important values I keep with me every time I go into a boardroom and this is where you are able to impact at a very high level where it dribbles down and it drizzles down and becomes it makes a difference to a lot of people so so that has definitely been my motivation on why to be on boards Um, the psychotherapy came as a side thing when we had had all our three children and Selma became ill and it had it posed quite some heavy questions on where where are we where do we want to go what do we want to do what is it that I find very very meaningful in life and I just really missed the one-to-one with another human being where I don't have the CEO role. I'm in, in every 
step of my career, I've always had the CEO role or the manager role of being managed. So this equal relation where you can build and go deep is not something I have in my in my work life. And I realized how much that was calling me. And that was the reason I started. It was really, I mean, in the beginning, I was almost embarrassed to Google it, you know, how to become a psychotherapist, because I thought, is this really what I'm doing? And I then went to a meeting, heard about it, and just felt so right for it so that's why I did the psychotherapy I did it for four years training and as you said normally it's not only the many hours you spend on it is also the emotional impact and my goodness uh, the first year was myself I was just basically not able to say any clever words about who I was because it was just all up in the air the second year I was challenging my husband I was challenging my parents I was just being totally unstable and about all my closest relationships um and then it all starts to sort of ah fall into place again in the third and the fourth year you start having clients and it's just extremely rewarding and I just found as well that it makes me a better CEO it is much more comfortable for me to be in the difficult conversations. I've had staff members who had an anxiety attack at work right in the middle of the office hours. And um, I was able to help her. I mean, really help her and not just give her a glass of water and call, you know, some of the other staff members were going to call an ambulance because they didn't know what was going on. And I said, hang on, just before you do it, give me 10 minutes. And the interesting thing is, I wasn't actually sure how I was going to tell my surroundings, my professional surroundings, that I was taking this psychotherapy degree and I hadn't told my staff, I hadn't told the office that I was doing this. And I knew I had to, but I just hadn't really figured out how. So I was, I knew I was sort of pressured on, on time to tell them because it was about time. She had this panic attack and, or anxiety attack and I could help her out. And it was in front of people because that's where it happened. And she calmed down and we moved into another office and had an hour of conversation and talks. And I could sort of send her off with a, a calm state of mind. And I came into the other office and people just looked at me and they're like, what? Do you have the black belt in some kind of psychology or something? What's going on? And it was so interesting because I, I thought to myself, oh, no, I blew my cover. But thank you. Thank you to this divine intervention that gave me the ability to say, you know, guys, I actually do have a little black belt, not a big one, but a little black belt in this because I've trained for this. And the reaction from the staff was, of course, 
magnificent. You've just shown how important it is that you can do this. So it was with extremely positive reactions from the staff members. Amazing. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. I feel there are many more topics I'd love to dive in with you. I do have one final question and in terms of our, our time sort of for this podcast episode. Before I get to that, if, if anyone is listening and going, I want to know more about doing that part-time CEO thing and being a chairperson and, 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 um, would it be okay if they contact you? Do you have tips you can share if anyone wants to know more? Oh, absolutely. Of course, yes. I know you're passionate about equality and I think the whole, you know, flexible hours is such a key piece in it being more equal when we want to be full-time moms also. Um, and I mean, we are full-time moms, whether we're with our kids all the time. Or not. It's such a weird thing, isn't it? I oh, even yes. just caught, caught that piece. It's like, I'm a full-time mom even right now when I'm working. Of course, I'm a full-time exactly. mom. I'm not, I am not part-time mom. Wow, the language is fascinating and uh, as i as i said to you normie just freeing up the time here to do this is an absolute pleasure but i've had to make sure i'm not dis disturbed by kids you know this is the reality it might sound like i'm super uh you know i have all these resources or whatever you would call it but i'm the truth is i've had to barricade myself here in a room and say please give me an hour of quietness so it doesn't disturb this podcast absolutely absolutely it's not like you have a live-in nanny or someone else that takes care of it all you're you're in it no sometimes I wish I did definitely <laughs> <laughs> um final thing I'd love you to share three tips um and it can be about any of the things we've talked about or maybe some of the things we haven't yet talked about either about you know being being a woman who became a, a, a chair, I mean, I know you're a, a chairperson for a really important, one of the most prestigious music uh, boards in Denmark. So, you know, maybe something you've learned from there or being the part-time CEO or all the other things you've done. What are three tips that you'd love or three pieces of nuggets that you'd love to leave everyone listening with? Hmm. Um, I think one of my key advice would be we have to be able to rest in a sort of friction environment. I know this is not popular. I don't like it either, but it is extremely important that we're able to stay there when it's difficult. I experienced that this is a place where this becomes a bit... Um, you know, men and women, I don't want to do too many of those, but but I see the men are better at staying there than the women. And that means we lose out because that's where the important decision is being made. That's where we win or lose, basically. Um, and that leads me on to my next point, which is we have to take ourselves seriously because otherwise no one else is going to do it and this is very much related to my experiences when I negotiate salaries when I negotiate um the whole package basically with with new staff members when they're male versus female uh, I've had women come through the door and I say what kind of salary frame are you working within 
And the response could be, well, as long as I get the job in this, I love music and that's enough in itself. And I've had to say, okay, I'm going to go out and get myself a cup of coffee. When I come back, I'm going to ask you the same question. I'm going to ask you to take yourself very seriously and that you should get a proper pay for that. Otherwise, I'm not going to give it to you because I'm on a tight budget as well. So if you're not going to challenge me on it, I'm not going to give you what you should have, what you deserve. So, and that it, it relates slightly also to the friction part because we don't like being in salary negotiations. We rather, you know, but no one's going to give us more money for free. No, no, sorry, not for free, you know, just out of thin air. We need to be in that room asking for that salary rise or raise or more perks or whatever we're looking for when they say no we have to keep our foot in the door and i think my manager my ceo will agree that i have really done that and i have a, an unsteady stomach as well when i do it but we have to do it because there is such a big gap between what we make and what our male colleagues make they did a very good um, uh, campaign in Denmark last year. So from, first, I think, beginning of November last year, a lot of women started wearing a bracelet that said, from now on, I'm working for free to illustrate. Yeah, from November, of, November and December, two months of the year, women work for free compared. Wow. Exactly. It was wow. quite, I think that was quite clear message. Um, and the last advice I think would be um, the networks. In the beginning, I was very against female networks. I thought we sh that shouldn't be in itself a measure of why we are in a network with someone. So I was against it in, in quite a few years until... I came into a network. In Danish, it's called Bestyrelseskvinder. Mm -hmm. So in English, you would call it women on boards. And it is a magnificent network. And suddenly we're sat with other fellow human beings who know what it is like. I'm not saying men don't know what it's like, but it is different to sit. I've been sitting in the toilet of my office emptying my the milk from my breast because I was still breastfeeding before a meeting um no man can say they know <laughs> what that's like um I've been breastfeeding in public and at meetings and the kids would sort of let go of the tit and suddenly it's out free in the open with my CFO right in front of me that kind of experience is very valuable to be able to share with someone else who will laugh and not be ashamed or not feel it's uncomfortable. Um, I'm not saying we should all divide. Certainly not. We don't want a divided society with women and men on each side. I think that's not the way forward. But it is worthwhile to be with someone else in the room who know what knows what it's like. And also with the structural challenges, there are these unconscious bias and how can we share stories about how to work around it? So I've been very 
very thankful to that kind of network. Beautiful. I love those points. And and that first bit about, you know, not shying away from the friction and having the staying power to as much as we might have stomach ache and feel uncomfortable and just want to release the tension by running away or going, oh, I don't need what I, I, I don't need that pay rise or it's okay or whatever, staying in it and being okay with holding the tension. Um, and maybe this is also where if you have that network backing you and you have other women backing you, it's easier to stay in the friction so thank you so much louis there was so much more we could have talked about but i am incredibly I know. grateful for I you giving like us the time for hours <laughs> <laughs> maybe there'll be a part two <laughs> thank you so thank much thank you so much for having me it was a pleasure thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode make sure to subscribe so that you get notified every time there's a new episode And I would so love it if you would write a quick review as that really helps others to find and trust the podcast. You can do that at lovethepodcast.com forward slash FIP. And remember, no matter what's going on around you, it only takes a single breath to start grounding back into your power. So let's take a breath. Feel your power and go spread the magic. <laughs>